How do we actually not only have these interventions work in controlled settings, but actually have them, quote, work in the market? So what is an intervention that's going to improve health and well-being for kids that the market is actually interested in and motivated to adopt? This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. The daughter of a neurosurgeon and professor of nursing, Margaret Laws initially steered clear of healthcare, but couldn't escape. And over the course of her career, his integrated experience in public health, business, and government to advance the health of Californians, and particularly children. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shewitz. And I'm Lisa Sunin, and today's episode is brought to you by AARP Market Innovation which works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. So, you know, Margaret coming here today is wonderful. I've been fascinated over the past few years at how much activity I'm seeing with not-for-profit entities, so actively getting into product creation, drug discovery, and venture capital Uh, Like, for instance, the JDRF, an Epilepsy Foundation, a Heart Association starting venture funds, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, California Healthcare Foundation, where Margaret previously was. Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which was critically involved in some of the new uh, Vertex drugs, actually. They uh, sold royalty rights for $3 billion. Well, I mean, uh, I think that drug, part yeah. of it is that people, you know, in foundations, yeah. they, they, you know, they really want to see a result. You know, when you're trying to drive a result for something, yeah. turns out that businesses kind of does that. The whole point of a lot of these healthcare businesses is really trans- translating a promising idea or concept into something that really works ideally at scale in the real world. And so I think trying to embrace that. Now, because of the, 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 you know, not all business, you know, the way a business works is different than, than a foundation. So I think they're, it's really important to structure it carefully. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, it's great to have Margaret Laws here. She is currently CEO of Hope Labs. In addition to being a wonderful friend, she's a well-respective and creative contributor to the healthcare scene. And so, Margaret, what are your thoughts on this? What are your <laughs> thoughts on this whole not-for-profit explosion in the in the business side of the world? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Uh, I've been a, a fan of, of both of yours, and so it's fun to be talking with you today. Um, Long-time re- listener, first-time guest. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Indeed, sitting in front of the microphone today. So, um, very interesting uh you know, I've been at this intersection of nonprofit, for-profit healthcare for many, many years now, and I have also observed this uh, this explosion. And it, certainly, the cystic fibrosis example gets a lot of attention, and it's one of those "how can we do that too?" Right, yeah. I don't think it's that simple. Like, I think there aren't that putting many putting it all on seventeen, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. There aren't that many three. I, I'm not looking for all the three billion dollar opportunities out there. But but having said that, I do think that. Um, the worlds are beginning to blur a bit more. And one of the things I often talk about is some of the newer foundations and nonprofits like the Omidyar Group and its organizations, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, the Benioff at Salesforce, have been really trying to bring, um, you know, bring their uh, resources and both Is this financial. how they wash their consciences by <laughs> well, with all the money they've made? <laughs> I don't think about it quite that way. I think it really is thinking about how do we bring the discipline and the resources of the private sector and of the business world to the big problems that we're facing in the social sector. And I think there's a lot, my personal That's philosophy, very well phrased, my, yeah, gosh. my personal philosophy has always been that there's a lot we can do there. And I think one of the exciting things for me has been to play in both of those worlds and to really try to bring them together. 
So we really want to hope we can elicit some of your uh, of the story, and maybe one of the best ways we can start to get in it is to start with your current experience as the CEO of Hope Labs, a role I know you took on about a year and a half ago after spending almost two decades working for the California Healthcare Foundation. The Hope Lab experience seems to crystallize so many of the key challenges and opportunities around behavior and health, so I can't really resist diving in there. I was hoping maybe you could walk us through the Hope Lab story, starting with the original goal, um, and I know that was before you joined, but it still seems very very relevant. Absolutely. So Hope Lab has a, a really interesting founding story. Pierre Midiar, founder of e- eBay, his wife Pam, um, had made a decision that they were going to uh, do philanthropic work with the money that they made from eBay and PayPal. But prior to that, Pam had actually been working in a research lab, and she was also an avid gamer played video games, she and Pierre. And one of the things that uh, that she was she was thinking about and she had this inspiration. I when I when I give the talk I show a slide with her with the light bulb having this inspiration, what if a video game could cure cancer? And she had this inspiration of thinking about how might we think about how a game applied to the, a particular problem that we have, which is that kids who are going through um, cancer treatment uh, are not taking all their chemo drugs and antibiotics. And when they don't, just an example, if, if they miss 20% of their doses, it increases their chance of a recurrence twofold. And so it's a big problem. And, and I was surprised when you, you know, when, when I initially heard this because you'd figure, my gosh, parents would be just sitting on them. But you're talking about adolescence, it sounds like. Adolescent kids, where it's really more of an, I mean, it's an issue in diabetes, it's an issue right. for all of these. Yep. And, um, and and sometimes they may take the, 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 the chemo, but then not an antibiotic or one of the associated medicines. Right. And, and they and don't have sound, a good sense of their own mortality. When it sounds like adherence was a real problem. Yeah. And so the, 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 way that Hope Lab approached it, and Steve Cole, who was the head of research um, at the time, so before Hope Lab was even formed, had a notion of thinking about what is the psychology of why this is happening. So so what is the psychology around why a kid who needs to take these drugs to, to live and to thrive would not take them? And, and it, to be very overly simplistic about it, what, what they determined was that chemo and antibiotics were associated with being sick and nobody right. who's a kid wants to be sick so and so the, and and I think there was also a sense of powerlessness that I've been given this diagnosis and I don't have self-efficacy or power to change it and so the creation of remission which was really the product for which hope lab was created hope lab was created to be a vehicle to to build this video game remission was to reverse engineer to think almost about the video game as a drug and to think about how would you develop a game, a drug that could target this this uh, psychology and its associated behaviors, the psychology of feeling powerless and feeling like chemo is the enemy, the behaviors of not taking the medication. And so the game, uh, which you can still see on our site and play, uh, did a couple of things. It, it really helped uh, the kids become powerful, take on power to blast what you're describing is a first-person shooter game. <laughs> exactly. With, with a female with a, with protagonist. With a female protagonist named Roxy. Um, and there was, a, there was education in the game, and there was, um, and there was this power uh, role. And so there were the, – the kids did need to, as they went through the game, learn about their condition to be able to, to get the points and things they needed to move forward. But really what it was about was, uh, was gaining efficacy and gaining power. And so the, basically what happened was the video game was created many, many iterations – um, randomized controlled t- trial with 375 kids. Um, they did a control versus just a regular video game and basically found that the kids who 
played the game had higher levels of chemo in their blood and took their antibiotics more consistently. It's interesting because that what year was that approximately? Do you know? Uh, it was about twelve years ago. <laughs> yeah. So so around you know. 18, 19 started. years ago, so, so there was this whole, like, in that timeline, there was a whole bunch of people trying to create games for for similar things for kids. I know there was a company, Click Health, that did a, an asthma game. There was a bunch of others. Uh, seems like those have come and gone to a certain extent. It doesn't seem like that. The ultimate theory of video games is that they're totally addictive, right? And many of them are. And yet it doesn't seem like these have had the persistent, you know, ability to, 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 to do what the actual first-person shooter games seem to do. Well, it, it can be a much longer conversation. We just were talking about this at, at work the other day because one of my colleague, Jana Heriteros, who leads our research now, was, was giving a history um, of remission. And what was interesting about this is that what happened in the game was that kids' cancer knowledge went up and their self-efficacy went up. And it turned out that Actually, while the knowledge went up, that wasn't really what was important. What was important was the self-efficacy piece. They did trials to uh-huh. determine that. And so if what you were trying to do with uh, intervention was simply say, if we could increase knowledge, we're going to have better outcomes, that wasn't, the, that wasn't what the effective factor was here. It was really self-efficacy. Interesting. So, so what's so interesting is so then, you know, I mean, this was a, a su- you know, with a lot of resource poured into this, but it sounds like a, an effective project that was done almost in, in really the way you'd like to see see something like this developed with understanding the behavioral underpinnings with all the best technology. And then it's, and you guys were like, well, this is really great. Let's see if we can apply some of this success to other, um, uh, to other problems of children. Absolutely. And still before my time. So the, the team then took... Not her fault. <laughs> <laughs> the team then, but great, great. Uh, my my uh, predecessors re- basically took what they had learned from remission and were looking at a uh, broader audience to apply it to. Thankfully, the the you know the group of kids with cancer who are of video game playing age isn't that big. Um, so the the next uh, topic that was tackled was physical activity, and it was really physical activity as a way to get to issues around childhood obesity and type two diabetes. But really, the thing that the team felt that they could impact was much less sort of what was going into the kids, the food system or the home situations of these kids, but really to try to get kids to be more active. And so there was a similar process really to look at all kinds of tweens, teens, what led to psychologically and emotionally their their, um, ability to be and their actual being physically active. And sometimes it was they didn't have a safe place to exercise. Sometimes it was, you know, they didn't want to get their hair. I mean, there were all sorts of reasons you can imagine why people don't exercise. And so the the formula was applied to this challenge and a similar model of uh, looking at the psychology, doing a very, very youth-engaged design process. You know, we call it human-centered design now, and we, we use it everywhere in healthcare. At the time, I think uh, it wasn't quite as in vogue as it is now, but that was basically the process. Engage lots of young people, really understand their needs, their desires, their behaviors, and then try to build something that could act on those. And what you came up with, with this was pre-Fitbit, but it was sort of a, it was both like an app and an activity and a sensor. Um, and it gave the kid bad, kids badges and, and you know, whether they need stinking badges, right? yeah. but um, they, whether they have badges or, and, 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 and a lot of other incentives. And it, what was the issue with this? Because it seemed you had all the components, but it sounded like the sum was le- that the whole was less than the sum of the parts. Well, you know, I think one of the things that we always have to think about, and I appreciate you 
continuing to take us back in history and to remember that actually when Zamzi, which was the name of this product, was being created, it started with a different name, G. Diddy, but became Zamzi, um, there actually wasn't a sensor That's Lisa's internet name. (laughs) G. Diddy, Diddy. there you go. There wasn't a sensor on the market that was sensitive enough to pick up really short bursts of activity. And what they had learned, particularly for tween girls, was that a lot of what they were going to be able to do was get them moving through dance and through quick bursts of motion. So long story short, the team actually was working both on the hardware. What would be a cool sensor that a kid would want to keep and use and not lose? I mean, all sorts of problems, as we know with that. And how would that hook into a motivational game that would get them at, get them moving. Okay, now fast forward. You take over Hope Labs. Right at the time it was exiting Zamzi, I believe. What is what is the, the mission of the organization now? Well, I'm actually going to go back to David's question because I think it's a, it's a great way to answer this question. So David's question was what happened. Right. It went through randomized controlled trials. It showed efficacy. It didn't – the market didn't catch on fire with, with every plan and every payer out there buying this. And I think one of the things that – um, that the Hope Lab team and board and funders realized and that um, that we all struggle with, we've certainly struggled with, David, and some of the work you and I have talked about, is um, how do we actually not only have these interventions work in controlled settings, but actually have them, quote, work in the market? So what is a intervention that's going to improve health and well-being for kids that the market is actually interested in and motivated to adopt. And so when I came into Hope Lab, uh, what we did do was we actually ended up selling Zamzi to WellTalk, which had a platform on which Zamzi could be a product. It was complementary to other things. So it was a a great outcome uh, from that perspective. But what I came into Hope Lab thinking about was this is an amazing, there's an amazing history here. There's this incredible formula of really thinking about how to combine science and design and technology and how to be science driven in developing these interventions. What we haven't really developed is a way of working effectively with the market. And so when I came into Hope Lab, the challenge and our, our current challenge, what we're, what we're figuring out through lots of different experiments right now, is how can we continue to develop and, and sort of co-develop, help develop <coughs> new interventions to improve health and well-being of kids that actually have the potential to scale in the market. And so when I came in, one of the things we did was go out to the market and talk to Medicaid plans, commercial plans, pediatric hospitals, basically the right. schools, the stakeholders, and really try to understand where are there areas where there we need innovation for health and well-being of kids and the market is motivated to to partner and potentially adopt. It's sort of interesting because I think my perception is this is coming from the opposite direction almost of your prior experience at California Healthcare Foundation where you guys had already figured out that working with existing market successes was the path to glory in your not-for-profit world. Mm-hmm. And now you're kind of, you know, coming from the other side and figuring out how to do it in a different way or maybe maybe just reliving the lesson for them. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So what we did at California Healthcare Foundation with the Innovation Fund, our social venture fund, was look for opportunities to take um, interesting digital health technologies and have them work in the safety net as well as in the commercial market. So we invested in Omada, Propeller, iRhythm, which you talked to Uday last week. Um, we had uh, Omada, uh, Sean on the show. Sean's been on too. recently. Yeah, we're big fans of Omada. Yeah, lo- love them. And Omada was actually that's the inspiration. That's a remarkable series of investments, by the way. I mean, that's incredibly prescient, all of those companies. Well, and it was, uh, to, to Lisa's earlier point, what was so interesting about it was that, that 
we, both we and all of the founders of those companies believed that these companies and these interventions should be and could be really helpful in the safety net in our underserved markets, serving low-income people. And the traditional path, at least the short-term traditional path of a venture-backed company wasn't going to take them there. Right. But it wasn't that they didn't want to go there or even that their other investors didn't want to see that piece of it developed. It was just, I think, the expertise that we brought and some of the, the, the financing that we brought helped that to happen much sooner than it would have happened otherwise and kind of helped the DNA of the company evolve to be thinking about those markets as well. And so we were looking, to Lisa's point, for um, for early stage companies that we thought had the potential to make a big impact in those markets. The difference between what we were looking at at CHCF and Hope Lab um, is that Hope Lab is focused on kids and young adults. And one of the challenges, as you well know, and certainly one of the challenges everybody talked to me about when I decided to take this job is that kids in the healthcare system are generally cheap. And so it's it's difficult to um, or build. put another way, nobody wants to pay anything for right. them. Right, <laughs> right. Except, except maybe for, they're doting mothers. <laughs> well, except, except to the point, except to kids who have really significant medical conditions and then the pediatric hospital, it's a whole different story. Yeah. And so one of the challenges that faced Zamzi, um, as opposed to kids with cancer, where there is going to be money spent on treatment, was that you're really talking about prevention and you're talking about population health and you're talking about things that long-term can... Long-term payoffs. Long-term payoffs, it's exactly. It's really interesting. It's so and interesting. so um, one of the things that's interesting interesting about Hope Lab's role as I think a very business savvy philanthropic organization is that we can take on some of these challenges of this is a it's a challenging market it's not a market where there's necessarily a huge amount of money to be made in the short term but it's a market where there's really important societal impact to be had if we can get into this trajectory of health and well-being of kids and young adults both both mental emotional health and physical health and help shift that. Well, I know one of the projects you've worked on um, is teen suicide. I don't know if you can talk about that. I mean, clearly that's an area that the average health plan and the average clinician and the average payer isn't going to spend time thinking about as an organizational entity. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's not it, – so I will – I've just – a slight correction, which is that Hope Lab did a small project with the Jed Foundation, and the Jed Foundation is focused on preventing teen suicide, but it's really focused much more broadly on mental and emotional wellness, and it has – focus has been in the college market, but they're also going to be do, doing work in high school starting this mm-hmm. year. And so the work that Hope Lab did was really around – Um, how do young people naturally support each other? So as we've been in the broader market looking at peer support models and thinking about the role that peer support plays in the broader healthcare system, this was sort of an investigation into the psychology of peer support among Mm -hmm. teens and young adults. Mm -hmm. And the way that it filters back in, the three major projects we're working on right now, one is uh, work with adolescents and young adults with cancer. Um, It's not a game. It's not sort of building another game, but it really is looking at what interventions can help adolescents and young adults with cancer have better outcomes. A lot of the focus is on psychosocial factors Mm -hmm. that affect young people when they have a really significant illness. The second was one of the um, topics that came up and came to us loud and clear when we talked to market players, and that was the time around birth. How might we do work where we can intervene to help um, have healthier births and help the early part of life be be healthier. So there's opportunities to prevent 
um, preterm birth. There's opportunities to prevent child abuse and neglect. There's a lot of things you can do around that. So we're partnered with an organization called Nurse Family Partnership, and we've been working with them to build, to actually bring digital tools to their evidence-based program. This was the one I was saying earlier. OMADA was the inspiration. OMADA had, took a bricks-and-mortar program that had a great evidence base and said, how could we bring digital tools to this and make it more scalable, more affordable, um, more available? So we really have taken that same mentality and thought about this program for at-risk teen moms. You had a relationship uh, uh, driven by a nurse family partnership that you knew worked, but the challenge was whether you could use some digital tools to extend and expand it. Is that right? Exactly. And well, so th- It's so interesting, though, because I think so many people believe that if you're going after the Medicaid population or a similarly situated population, that you can't trust them with technology. They're, they're not capable of using it. It'll get lost or stolen, you know, blah, 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 excuse, you know. Yeah, yeah. Up to the stars. Right. Well, one of the, again, one of the really fun and exciting things about having the focus of our work be young people is young people are digital natives. And I, what I say these days is we don't necessarily talk so much about Hope Lab being a technology developer. We're just, we're, we're working on interventions with young people. And because they're digital natives, there's almost always going to be some technology element to it. Yeah. And so what we learned with nurse Otherwise, family they don't, you can't get yeah, them to stop Otherwise, they won't, right. <laughs> you can't. And, and at CHCF, <laughs> in the work that we did in the Medicaid market, you know, we would have these conversations where people would say, well, our people don't have cell phones. And we would say, go to your waiting room and look around. And we, in what, what would happen when we started talking with Nurse Family Partnership is they, they surveyed and found that between, you know, 93 and 97 percent of the clients have phones. And they don't always have great data plans, but it's not, it's not that simple. But it's the native way that the young people in these populations live their lives. So you said there was a third initiative. And there's a third. And that's where I'm going to get back to the teen mental and emotional health. So um, the other big issue that came up as we talked with with payers and providers in the market was we're very aware that we've got real challenges around mental and emotional health of young people, and we just don't know how to address them. And this is an area where we'd be interested in experimenting and learning and seeing whether there's something that that we could potentially do together. Yeah, I, I mean, it's such a huge issue. I huge. Mean, so many parents I know have struggled with it, whether they're, you know, yeah. from, you know, underserved populations or very served. Very pop- served populations. Well, I mean, you know, you mentioned that there was just a very recent article talking about that what actually may exasper- exacerbate a lot of this is um, apps and phone mm-hmm. apps, specifically Snapchat and, Insta- and uh, yeah. Instagram, where apparently particularly for um, uh, adolescent girls mm-hmm. um, is, is apparently terrible for them, according to this right. recent study. Well, there's all this um, em- emphasis on perfection and mm-hmm. Yeah, YouTube was the only, of the, of the only one of the apps that sort of emerged as a net positive among the five the that cats. were studied. It's the cat <laughs> videos, I think. It's, just, it's, a, it's, it's generally better than antidepressants. Unexpectedly salubrious. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you end up here? I mean, how did you end up? I mean, I know your parents were in the healthcare world, but this is a whole different world than they were in. So yeah. how did you end up in this sort of interesting confluence of not-for-profit <laughs> for-profit, business-slash-social stuff? Yeah. So great question. We have to go way back, and I'll tell the very short version of the story, which is when I was in college, I thought I was going to be go to English graduate school and become an English professor. And that I think I began to realize as I was finishing college that that probably wasn't the right path for me for lots of reasons. And I, um, I spent the summer before I uh, graduated in Africa, and I began to get. I was teaching, but I began to get more interested in sort of the world of health and social services. And I came back, and I actually had my first job after college uh, in Boston, Cambridge, in Somerville, actually as a homeless caseworker. Huh. And so I, I was doing what we now would call, you know, 
human-centered design and interviewing work, and I was working with young homeless moms and their kids and, and got a really you know, interesting understanding of um, these people and how this, their lives were working or not working and how the system didn't, did or didn't work with them. And I then subsequently went on to work in a couple nonprofit organizations that I was in state government at the time. Um, I worked in international health in the World Health Organization for a year in the AIDS program very early on. And then I came back and did a degree at the Kennedy School. And one of the things I knew uh, when I went there, and the reason I did it, was that I, I, I had established earlier that I was really interested in sort of cross-sectoral and multi-sectoral work. And I, I wanted to know enough about business and know enough about public policy and know enough about law that I could that I could try to work at some of the intersections. Because I think social issues and a lot of social problems are really, you know, they are at the intersection of, uh, of the commercial sector of society, of government, and of, of how we kind of try to intervene with nonprofits. So I went through the Kennedy School. I spent some time after Kennedy School uh, in management consulting. I worked in both government and strategy. So I got a little bit of a foundation there really loved and loved it and had a great learning curve and then decided that I wanted to get back into a, a role in a nonprofit. And I came out to California and uh, ended up at the California Healthcare Foundation, which had just started uh, about a year before, and uh, met Mark Smith, who was the CEO at the time, um, who said, you know, I had asked him actually for a referral to the Kaiser Family Foundation because I'd worked on policy and AIDS. And I thought, well, they work on policy and AIDS. I could go work there maybe. And he said, well, I'll, I'll do that if you want, but we have a foundation here and maybe you want to work here. And I thought, well, you know, What's the job? How and he can you said, imagine? I can't even imagine not working for Mark. If yeah, exactly. So, guy. yeah, fabulous and really an amazing opportunity. Sam Carpenter, so a few of the people yeah. were already there. An amazing opportunity to kind of be in on the ground floor of a new foundation and a foundation that actually had an orientation that really aligned well with me, which is that it was going to recognize that in order to be successful, we're going to need to work with the market. And to well, try I, to- I think that was so interesting that that. Um, California Healthcare Foundation formed a venture fund. That was pretty mm-hmm. early mm-hmm. for the not-for-profit world of doing that. Yeah. And frankly, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation hadn't formed a venture fund at the time. They had just made some, you know, relationships that resulted in that windfall. Um, but you guys literally formed a fund. And how were you treated by the venture capitalists on the outside? Did they treat you as a second-class citizen coming from a not-for-profit? Or did they treat you as an equal? No, and that's a great question. And the um, tiny bit of background to the genesis of that fund. So I had started a program at CHCF called Innovations for the Underserved. Right. And I had, we'd been working with all the usual suspects, <laughs> with university-based research centers, with nonprofits, but not with healthcare companies. And what was happening was we were getting approached, I was doing a lot of work in technology, so we were getting approached by technology companies saying, gosh, you know, there are things we're doing that could really benefit low-income populations. Can we work with you? And Mark and I and others, uh, Barbara Lubash, who was on the board, started having conversations about, uh, well, could we do something that involved investing money that would otherwise go to grants into companies. And there were actually precedents, not in healthcare, but right. New Schools Venture Fund, which was an education fund. There were a few out there. Mission investing was starting. There had been a lot in the community development arena, not so much in health. So what we, we treated it as a, a grand experiment and a really interesting one. And I went out and um, talked with pretty much every healthcare, IT, and uh, services fund. And people were very receptive. It was, um, and you know, 
<laughs> being polite, being nice, but people were very, very receptive. And they said, you know, um, we recognize that there's potentially a market out there in Medicaid. I think there's more recognition of that today than there was then. But they were really interested in how what we might bring to the table. And so I think what we had to do is convince them that we had something other than money that could be valuable. And so what we what we ended up doing was basically having agreements where they said, you're going to need to work for this company the same way you'd work for this company if you were a venture investor. And we need you to be working on the economics of Medicaid, on opening doors to customers in the safety net. So, you know, it was a it was actually terrific. And we probably have co-invested alongside, if you count them all up, you know, 15 or 20 of the leading healthcare services and IT and some non-health IT funds. And uh, I think it's been a great evolution for the, the sector seeing more of it and more of it. So are you going to carry that through at Hope Labs, or is Mm -hmm. it going to be more of a product creation engine? No, great question. One of the things I, I, yeah, one of the things I talked about when I, when I joined Hope Lab with the board and with the leadership. Now, Omidyar Group, which is the parent of Hope Lab, also has Omidyar Network, which right. is a mission investment fund. Right. So Omidyar Group was actually, and Omidyar Network was one of, has been one of the pioneers in mission investing across sectors. Well, they education. also have a commercial venture fund. And they also have a commercial venture fund that does some right. healthcare investment. So there's always been openness, and I think a lot of interest to Hope Lab working with existing companies. Uh, as well as potentially creating something. I think one of the really important lessons we, you know, Hope Lab learned was uh, when you're creating something that takes eight or 10 years, it takes a long time to get something to market. So if there are a lot of interesting solutions out there that are ready to adapt or pivot or could be evolved uh, to meet one of these needs, that actually starting and going through a partnership model I wouldn't say necessarily investee, but think you think about it that way. An investee or partnership model could be a really fruitful way to go. And so uh, we're we're completely open to that. And as we approach this teen mental emotional health work, we're definitely looking at all the companies that are out there in that space because there's 200, you know, north of 200 companies, not necessarily focused on young people, but focused on how do we do a better job of It meeting. sounds like it's great because you do such a clear job of defining what the problem is and having a sense of what a solution or what the components of a solution looks like. I mean, you're almost uniquely able to go, you know, and if you have a creativity about your partnering approach, you're able to go and find that existing assets in the community, I mean, the community in, in the ecosystem. Um, and say, oh, okay, this really seems to have, th- they got this right, and if they pivoted here, it could be perfect for us to adapt. Yeah. No, and it's, it's one of the things, It again, it's an experiment, and mm-hmm. I love creation and experiments, so this has been a, a fun one for me. But, David, to that point, one of the interesting things is we can play a role in creation, but we can also play a role in validation. Right. And at CHCF, one of the things we did with the Innovation Fund was any company that took an investment from us also had to agree to have an evaluation or a study done. And I think that validation process and the iteration that happens after tests and validation is really is a really important piece of what we bring to the table as well. So it's been – I've seen uh, lately, and it's lately only, very lately, a whole movement to start – venture funds that are focused on women's and children's health or family health or call it what you will. So I, maybe it's uh, your time. Maybe it's your time. Who knows? <laughs> Interesting question. And I, you know, Although I, they've yeah. had trouble raising money I these think, funds. Yeah, I think it's – I still think – we'll go back to, to sort of the very beginning of this conversation. I don't think there's a magic bullet. I don't think suddenly a market that for regulatory reasons and 
time to right. effect reasons has been challenging suddenly becomes unchallenging. I think we have to be creative about how we bring resources together. And that's what I'm excited about, sitting in a place where we have financial resources, we have scientific resources, we have partnership resources. I don't think we're going to tackle the more challenging, econ- ch- economically challenging parts of healthcare without being creative about bringing together you know, these different sectors. So last question, as we're running out of time, but you, I know you've traveled extensively around the world to places I couldn't even spell, much less think about going to. And you just come back from Bhutan, and which looked cool from the photos, I'll tell you that. Um, what have you learned? Like, what's the most prescient thing you've learned, the most important thing you've learned about how the world cares for mothers and children that you can bring back to us here in the U.S. where we do it so poorly? Yeah, I think that that's a great question. I'm thinking about whether there were any immediate reflections in Bhutan, but I think really investing in um, the early part of life and thinking about how we, we know intellectually, we know factually, know empirically that so much happens um, in that early part of life and that we live in a country where we have great economic inequality. And if we don't if we don't address issues that make it difficult for first-time parents, for low-income parents to be successful, we're going to pay for that forever. And I think there are a lot of countries that do a better job than we do, and we can learn from them. And we're going to be trying to pull those lessons into the work that we do at Hope Lab. Well, hopefully our Congress people are listening because they probably benefit from that, that advice. It was great That's so you woke of you, Lisa. Right? <laughs> I know. Sorry to betray my stripes. But uh, it's, you know, it's so true. It's like, you know, if you don't take care of the next generation, you know, you will have a lousy next generation. Well, and also, sorry, Lisa, that, but that it's so, when you're talking about the uh, inequality, I think that's really particularly striking because when you were saying, oh, how bad things are, I mean, in some communities, it's almost the opposite. I mean, it is this sort of, you know, the incredible, you know, ex- I mean, you have people like Ben Sass now saying, actually, we need to leave our kids alone a little bit yeah. and not sort of be on top of them for everything. So you have on one hand and- Give them choice of seven different kinds of kale. Right. <laughs> Exactly. For the Californians Speaking in the audience. Speaking from Mill Valley, yeah. California. Um, anyways, it's been wonderful to have you here. Um, you know I'm your biggest fan in any event. And thanks for sharing with us your story. That's thanks. fantastic. Thanks for having me. So that was awesome. I, I fascinating topic we really haven't covered in in great detail before that connection on the social, you know, venturing, venturing side of the world. So I thought that was interesting. And I also thought that the evolving interest or the, you know, the way people are approaching behavior and how you're, you know, the, for a while people were saying, oh, gamify this and gamify that. And this seemed to really, you know, I mean, really almost take us through the evolution of, well, how do you approach it in a, in a way that is both respects the underlying behavioral science and does it in a way that has a relevance to the market? So I thought that was a fascinating story. Yeah, and I think there's such a role for so many foundations and organizations like that to play to help support the fact that there is a long runway. And, and before we spend commercial money, you know, getting, getting organizations to focus and get, and get in the right direction makes a lot of sense. Well, please remember to um, uh, rate us on iTunes. Judge us, tell us we're worthy or not. <laughs> well, I'm worthy anyway. We can follow David's writing at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa Sunin at VentureValkyrie.com, as well as on the Timmerman Report. We're grateful to our sponsor, AARP Market Innovation, which works to spark innovation in the market that will benefit the quality of life for people over 50. 
Tectonics is produced by Connected Social Media and recorded today uh, live in the studio in with our guest today in Tectonics Studio B in beautiful, scenic, not underserved Mill Valley, California. Off to have some kale. <laughs>